Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will again deep dive the world of game theory by examining sequential games. Using real-world sporting examples, we will explore these games' characteristics, discuss how to logically think your way through them, and provide you strategies you can use to help assure you come out on top. So if you ever wondered how a soccer goalie can increase their likelihood of saving a penalty kick, or what game theory has to teach us about college basketball players trying to decide whether to enter the draft or not, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Now, for those of you that have listened to our past podcasts on game theory and sport, you know that game theory is the study of any strategic situation in which there are a set of players who are competing against each other for an outcome. And you also know that these situations that we study within game theory all have the same three components to them. The first component is that there has to be a set of players or a set of people that are engaged in this game. The second characteristic is that each player has a set of allowable moves they can make in accordance with the rules of the game. And then the final thing that we have to have is we have to have some type of outcome that they're competing for. And we have to be able to mathematically discuss that outcome. As you'll also recall from our previous podcasts, there are two different types of games. There's sequential games and there's simultaneous games. We spent a whole podcast already talking about sequential games, so today what I want to do is I want to focus on that second set of games, those simultaneous games. And I want to focus on what they are, how do we apply them to sport, and talk about some strategies that we can use in various simultaneous games to help sure that we can come out on top. But before all that, let's just begin with a simple question, and that is, what is a simultaneous game? Well, a simultaneous game is any situation where we have players who are having to make their moves or having to make their decisions at the exact same time without knowing for sure what the other person is doing. And simultaneous games are marked by the fact that the combination of those two players' moves results in whatever the outcome is, whatever the payoff is within the game. So a prime example of this that's been studied a great deal is the penalty kick in soccer. For those of you who might not follow or be fans of soccer, let me first start by offering kind of just a basic explanation for what a penalty kick is. So a penalty kick occurs in soccer based on one of two circumstances. Either a foul occurs in the penalty box over the course of the game, or a game is tied after overtime and a winner must be determined. And we don't always have to have a winner in soccer, but if you're playing in the knockout rounds of a tournament, that is how they resolve a tie. In both cases, though, there are two players involved in the game. We have the shooter and we have the goalie. The shooter is positioned 12 yards from the goal line upon which the goalie stands. So to simplify this game, let's just say that the shooter has three options. They can shoot to the right, they can shoot to the left, or they can shoot down the center of the goal. And likewise, let's say that the goalie also has three choices or three strategies that they can take. They can dive to the right, they can dive to the left, or they can stand still and be in the center of the goal. 
At the professional level, these decisions are made simultaneously. We make a decision, both the shooter and the goalie, make a decision before the shot occurs to do whichever option they think will result in the best outcome. Now remember that that outcome is a result of their combined actions. Under the rules of game theory, we have to be able to talk about these outcomes mathematically. So we can classify these pretty easy. Let's begin with asking, what is it that the player wants to happen in this situation? Well, they want to score a goal. That's the outcome that is most desirable for them. Conversely, the goalie's outcome that they most want is for the shooter not to score a goal. And so we have an outcome that's desired by both individuals, but how do we talk about this mathematically? Like I said before, luckily penalty kicks have been studied quite a bit, so we know how we should be talking about them mathematically, and that is just the shooting percentage of the player. This was done very well in a 2002 paper entitled Testing Mixed Strategy Equilibria When Players Are Heterogeneous, The Case of the Penalty Kick. And in this study, they analyzed 459 penalty kicks over a three-year period, and those kicks occurred in the top league in Italy and the top league in France. And they describe the strategies or options in a slightly different way than we talked about. But what they found was that if the player and the goalie made the same decision, meaning if they picked the same way to go, that the shooter scored 60% of the time and they only missed 40% of the time. Conversely, though, when the player and goalie made opposite decisions, meaning the goalie chose to dive to the right and the player shot to the left, the player scored in that instance 90% of the time and only missed 10 So knowing this, we can now easily determine what a player should do and what the goalie should do. The player should try to shoot the opposite way of the goalie, and the goalie should try to dive the same way as the shooter. Now, this is a massive oversimplification of this game because we don't take into account just the side that the players could shoot or just what side the goalie could dive to. We also have so many other variables that could be affecting whether the ball is going in or not going in. For example, not only can you, the shooter go to the left or the right, they can go low to the right, low to the left, on the middle on the right and the middle of the left, or high to the right and to the left. They can also kick the ball powerful. They could also place the ball. So all of these other choices that the shooter has are things that we should take into consideration. Similarly with the goalie, we have other factors that we should be taking into consideration, not just what side they dive to, but how much of the goal that they cover to that side, whether they dive low, whether they dive high, whether they fully lay out or only go half out. We need to take all those things in consideration. So if we did that, and we actually could within game theory, we could chart all of these factors into this game and we could come up with a mathematical outcome. But the main point that I'm trying to make with this example is not getting into a really detailed analysis, is to show what a simultaneous game looks like within sport. And we can find examples of them not just in situations like this in soccer, but also in play calling in football. Because when we're calling a play in football, the offense is simultaneously calling a play while the defense is also calling a play. The offense doesn't know exactly what play is going to be called, and neither does the defense. And we can actually talk about, again, the outcomes mathematically, because we can talk about the yards gained per play, and how the offense was set, and how the defense was set. 
That is all game theory, and that's all simultaneous games. We could take it into the sport of tennis, and we could talk about how to hit a serve in tennis. Because when you're serving a ball in tennis, you're making a decision at the same time that the defender or the person receiving the serve is trying to make a decision. As the server, I'm trying to decide how hard to hit the ball and at what part in the court to place it. As the receiver of the serve, I'm trying to figure out where I should position myself based off of what I think the server is going to do. And once you both make your decision, the serve happens. And again, now we can mathematically calculate maybe the number of points won off that type of serve given that type of matchup. That all comes down to game theory. And the question you might be asking is, okay, great, but why does this matter? It matters because if we know how these situations are set up, then we can actually work to situate ourselves in a certain way that allows us to come out on top of the game. But it's important to note we don't just see these simultaneous games on the playing field. We also see them on the business side of sport. For example, you can go back to the 1987 NFL strike. This was a case where the players went on strike for 24 days. But at a certain point, while they're on strike, they have to make a decision whether they should cross the picket line or not because the NFL went out and got replacement players. And so they have to make a decision simultaneous to the other players on their team that are on strike about whether to cross the picket line or not. That is a simultaneous game. Or we can talk about when two sport teams are in the same city, maybe like the New York Mets and the New York Yankees. And they're competing at the beginning of the season and acting simultaneously to set ticket prices for the year. They don't just make their ticket prices as they go game to game. They both preset their ticket prices before the season even starts. And they're competing for fans and they're competing for profits. And so based off what the other team does... That directly affects my outcome, but I don't have any pre-knowledge going into this. I have to make that decision simultaneously. We could also talk about examples of simultaneous games on that business side when people are voting on whether to fund a new stadium for a professional sport franchise. Or if maybe they don't vote for it, that team leaves the city entirely. So the voting process, I'm making my decision as a voter simultaneously with all the other voters. And the outcome would be whether the team stays or the team leaves. And we could go on and on and on with examples like this on the business side. But what I want to do is propose an easy game that we can play against each other to hopefully increase your understanding of these types of simultaneous games and how to win them. And the game is called The Bank. Like we've done in previous podcasts, the two players in this game are just going to be you and me. And we each have two possible moves we can make. We can choose either A or we can choose B. The payoffs for those moves. If we both choose A then we both get no money from the bank. If you choose B though and I choose A, then you get $1,000 from the bank and I have to give the bank $500. Conversely, if you choose A and I choose B, then you have to give the bank $500 and the bank pays me $1,000. Finally, if we both choose B, we both get $300. So the game is, you have to write down either your choice of A or B on a piece of paper without knowing what I am going to do. And then we both are going to submit our moves to the bank without telling anyone what we wrote down. Once we both secretly have turned in our sheets of paper to the bank, the teller will read our choices out loud and the outcome will be awarded. So the question is, what letter are you going to write down on this sheet of paper? But before you answer that question, 
let's walk through this game a little bit by answering a series of questions and hopefully this will lead you to being able to make the right decision. So the first question that I have is which of the four choices maximizes your outcome? Well, that should be the easy one. Just like in the penalty kick shootout game that we previously talked about, you're going to want to pick B and get me to pick A. If that happens, you are going to get $1,000, and that is the highest payout that was on the board. If you can't get that outcome, then the next outcome you would want is you would want to pick B and hope that I pick B, and then we each get $300. Not quite as good, but it's not as bad as if you pick A and I pick A and we got nothing. That'd be the third best option, or the worst option if you pick A and I pick B and you lose $500. It's at this point in a lecture or when I'm talking about simultaneous games to individuals that a light bulb should go off and you should know exactly what to choose. But let's take this a step further. Knowing everything that you know now, can you guess what letter I would write down? Or better yet, can you predict how much money each of us will get at the end of this game from the bank? Well, if you are able to answer these questions, then you're starting to get the hang of game theory. And you'd be able to predict that regardless of what I do, the best option for you is to write the letter B. If you write the letter B, you are either going to get $1,000 or you're going to get $300. And you don't stand risking losing any amount of money. Hopefully, you also have recognized that the same is true for me. I'm going to write B because I'm either going to get $1,000 or $300 and I don't stand to lose anything. So if you know that you're going to write B and you can use that same logic to predict that I am going to write B, then we know that the outcome at the end of this game is going to be that we're both going to walk away from the bank with $300. While this game is a pretty easy and straightforward example of what a simultaneous game is and what it looks like, The reason I like it is because it highlights a number of key principles in simultaneous games. The first and maybe the most important one is the idea of a dominant strategy. A dominant strategy is an approach that a player can take in a game that guarantees them their best possible outcome regardless of anything else that the other player does. So in the bank game that we just played, choosing B was a dominant strategy because regardless of what I might do in the game, choosing B always gave you the highest possible payout. If you chose B and I chose A, you got a $1,000 payout. If you chose B and I chose B, you got a $300 payout. So regardless of anything that I did, it becomes the best possible strategy for you to take. So how does this help us? Well, if you're able to identify a strategy or a move that is dominant, then you don't have to really worry about what your opponent is going to do. It doesn't matter what they say to you, whether they're acting insane, whether they don't understand game theory, whether they make threats to you to try to force you to make a decision. It doesn't matter at all what they do because if we identify that dominant strategy, you should always take that path. You should always make that move because it will always result in you receiving the highest payout. In this way, identifying a dominant strategy is the best possible move that you can make before you write the letter on the paper. On the reverse of that, if we know what a player should never do, 
That is something that we call a strictly stupid strategy. A strictly stupid strategy is the exact opposite of a dominant strategy. It is the strategy or move that guarantees you will always get less than a different move. So choosing A was always going to guarantee me less money in the bank game. Because if I chose A and you chose A, I got nothing. If I chose A and you chose B, I owed the bank money. I owed the bank $500. So I know that that's a strictly stupid move. And again, if I understand game theory and I'm playing against someone who's logical, they know that it's a strictly stupid move too, so they will never make it. And that's how you're able to predict what I would do because you knew that choosing A was strictly stupid. So knowing that I understand game theory and logic, you can eliminate that option and you know that I'm going to also choose the dominant strategy. In the bank game, it just so happens that we only have two choices and that one of those choices was a dominant strategy and one of those choices was strictly stupid. So that game was pretty easy for you to play and win. But sometimes we don't have it as simple. We don't just have a dominant strategy to choose or we can't just eliminate a strictly stupid strategy. So let's change the bank game a little bit. Let's adjust it and now make the decision a little bit harder. Let's change it so that the outcomes now, still the same two players, still the same basic rules, but the outcomes are that if we both choose A, we both get $100 from the bank. If you choose B and I choose A, you get $300 from the bank and I owe the bank $100. Conversely, if you choose A and I choose B, then I get the $300 and you owe the bank $100. And then finally, if we both choose B, we both get $50. The first way to start assessing this game with these new defined rules, these new defined parameters, is to determine if there is a strictly dominant or stupid strategy. Now, the easiest way for us to see this or determine if there is a dominant or stupid strategy is to create something called a game matrix. Since this is a visual medium, I can't show you what a game matrix looks like. But if you go on to our Instagram page, which is at the sport professor, all one word, and you follow us, you can get an idea of what a game matrix looks like because I posted this game, the bank game. I've also posted the penalty kick shootout game and the last game that we'll be discussing. So that way you can actually visually look at this and have an idea. So anyways, the point of creating the game matrix is to help us visualize the outcome each player receives based on the move or based on the strategy they choose to take. So if you look at the game matrix right now on Instagram for this game, you can see that the outcome is best for you if you pick B and you have me pick A. And the best strategy for me is the exact opposite. I want you to pick A and I want to pick B. Likewise, you'll see that if you know that I'm going to pick B, you should also pick B. And why is that? Because if I pick B and you pick A, you lose $100. But if I pick B and you pick B, you get $50. That means we've actually identified a strictly dominant strategy. And you should always pick B because you don't want to run the risk of picking A and losing money. Some of you might have thought though, wait a minute, if we both pick B, we only get $100 and we miss out on the second best option. Because the best option would be for you to pick B and me to pick A, but the second best option was for us both to pick A and both get $100 from the bank. So why would I ever have us both choose BB when AA would actually get us a little bit more money? Well, in theory, yes, I agree with you that picking AA would be a better option. But why would I never do that? Why would I never pick A? Because as soon as you know, or as soon as you think that I'm going to pick A, and that you can pick A and we both get $100, 
you're going to do the exact opposite. You're going to do what we call defect. You're going to choose B because B guarantees you the greatest outcome. It guarantees you that you get $300 versus $100. And why would you want $100 when you can get $200 more? Remember, in the land of game theory, people are always going to try to optimize their outcome. That means that they're going to act selfish. They might lie to you. They might defect from an agreement if doing so is going to net them a higher payout. So in this adapted game of the bank, the dominant strategy is for you to pick B. But what you really want to try to do is you want to try to pick B and convince me to pick A. Because if you can convince me to pick A, convince me that you're working with me, convince me that we both should take home $100 instead of 50, and then you defect, then you're going to maximize the outcome. So what the bank game is nice and it's easy and it's a pretty straightforward example of a simultaneous game. And it does well to introduce us to a couple of new ideas, the strictly dominant and the strictly stupid strategy. It's important to point out that oftentimes in simultaneous games, things aren't as straightforward. There's not just that easy choice to make. We might have more than two choices in a game even. Like in the shootout game, we had three choices. You could either go right, left, or down the middle. In addition to maybe having three choices, you might not have that dominant or strictly stupid strategy. You might not have an obvious decision to make. So what I want to do now is I want to look at a bit more difficult simultaneous game in sport. And I'm going to call this the draft game. Before we begin, let me provide you a little bit of background on the draft. Each of our major professional sport leagues in the United States has a draft in which eligible players who are not in the league can enter their names. And then from that list of players who declare for the draft, the teams in the league go through one after another, selecting players for a set number of rounds. It might be two rounds, it might be three, it might be seven. It's whatever is predetermined. For most professional leagues, the athletes that are declaring themselves for the draft have to meet some type of eligibility or some form of eligibility requirements. For example, they might have to be a certain number of years removed from graduating high school, or they might have to be above a certain age, or a number of other factors. What this does is it leads to most of the individuals who declare for the draft coming from American colleges. However, for those student-athletes that are good enough to enter the draft, the decision for what year to declare for the draft can be pretty challenging. Let's take, for example, the NBA. The NBA has a rule that states, quote, A player shall be eligible for selection in the NBA draft with respect to which he has satisfied all of the requirements of Section 1B below, and one of those requirements is the player is or will be at least 19 years of age during the calendar year in which the draft is held, and with respect to the player who is not an international player, at least one NBA season has elapsed since the player's graduation from high school. So with this background, let's say that you are a 19-year-old and you just finished your freshman year of college basketball. And you have to decide on whether you're going to declare for the draft or come back for your sophomore season. You notice in trying to make this decision that a number of people are talking about you as a top 10 pick. And you actually get information that if all 10 of you were to enter the draft, all 10 of you would be guaranteed top 10 picks. And so you have to now make a decision. You have to make a decision whether you are going to go out in the draft or whether you are going to go back, play one more season, and go out the next year. The other nine players that are in the guaranteed top 10 are also trying to make this decision. They're trying to decide whether they should go back or whether they should come out in the draft. To determine what we should do, we need to start talking about the outcomes. We need to ask ourselves, What is it of value that a player gets from entering the draft? 
And what we can talk about them wanting to get to a certain team that may be given the greatest chance to win and whatnot. I want to focus on the probably biggest driver out there, and that's money. So when a player enters their draft, they're doing it to become a professional athlete, and that means getting paid. And not only are they looking to make money and get paid, but they're looking to make the most money they possibly can. And the way the NBA works, that means getting drafted as high as possible, because the NBA works on what's called a rookie wage scale. And that just means that based off where the person is drafted, they have a slotted salary amount. And the person who's drafted number one has the highest amount. The person who's number two it's the second highest amount, and so on and so on. So that means to get the best outcome possible, I want to try to be drafted as high as possible to get the greatest possible payout. Well, in theory, the less players that enter the draft, the better chance that I have of being drafted higher. Just think of it this way. If in theory, no one enters the draft but me, then I have a 100% chance to be drafted number one overall. Let's say two players enter the draft. Well, now I have a 50% chance of being the highest paid player overall. And we could continue this all the way through, but let's just recap what we have for our game. We have you competing against the other top nine projected picks in the NBA draft. And you and those other nine people all have one of two choices to make. You can either declare for the NBA draft or you can go back to college. And the outcome that you're trying to get is the highest possible draft position because the higher you get drafted, the more money you make. So the worst possible outcome for you would be that you chose to go into the draft and the other nine players chose to go to the draft as well. Because that means that you only have a 1 in 10 chance of getting that top pick and getting the most money. On the other side, the best possible outcome for you would be that if you chose to go into the NBA draft and everyone else chose to go back to college because that would guarantee that you're the number one pick and you now have the highest payout. The other two options are somewhere in between because if you choose not to go into the NBA draft and go back to college and so do the other nine players, now all of you are just going to have to go through this decision again next year. Plus, if you chose to go back to college and everyone else chooses to go to the draft, that would have some benefit to you because now you probably have another year to get seasoned, to get better, to maybe move into a top five guarantee, but you have to delay getting that money for a whole year. So we can talk about this in broad generalities, but let's simplify this by starting to put some numbers to these outcomes. Looking at the numbers from the 2018 season, the average salary for a top 10 player in the NBA draft was $11,869,038, with the number one player in the draft signing for just over $18 million a season. If you're a top 10 player and you decide to enter the draft, and so do all the other projected top 10 players, you would have an average salary of around $11 million a year. However, if I choose to stay in school and the other nine players choose to enter the draft, they are all guaranteed now to be a top nine pick. That means if we take an average of the top nine salaries, they would make $13 million $100,653. But if you stay in school, you get to improve your game. You get to now be guaranteed next year to be a top nine draft pick. And since the average salary increases a little bit every year, we'll say that next year, if you were to stay and everyone else goes and you become a top nine pick, you're guaranteed $14 million. So slightly more. 
Finally, if all the players choose to go back to school and you choose to enter the draft, that means you're going to be the number one pick and get that $18 million. But all of them are going to continue to improve and they're going to be guaranteed to be a top nine pick next year and they'll make $14 million. So you know the moves in the game, you know the players, and now you know the outcome. The question is, what would you do? Would you declare for the NBA draft? Or would you go back to college to get better and enter the draft in the following year? Well, the first thing you want to do to help answer this question is create a game matrix. And like we've already talked about, this game matrix is posted on our Instagram feed at the sport professor. And you can get on and look at that matrix. And as you're looking at it, the first thing you should try to determine is, is there a strictly dominant strategy or is there a strictly stupid strategy? And we do that because if there's a strictly dominant strategy, the game's over. I'm just going to do that. Or... Like we said, there's a strictly stupid strategy. I'm just going to avoid doing that. So that's the question that we ask. And in looking at the game matrix, you can see that if you choose to go to the draft, the other nine players should choose to stay in school that extra year because they'll make an extra $3 million. And if they choose to stay in and I go, then I make an extra $6 million. This type of game is what we call an outguessing game, meaning there is no dominant strategy. There is no strictly stupid strategy. The only way for us to get the best possible outcome is for us to guess what my opponent will do and then make the corresponding best move for myself. So knowing all this, what are you going to do? You know that the best outcome would be by doing the opposite of what those other nine players do. And ideally, the other nine players would go back to school so they can make an extra $3 million. And that then guarantees you that $18 million payout. So how do I get this to happen? Well, the first thing we need to try to do is we need to convince the other nine players that you are going to leave college. And one way that we do that is to employ a strategy that we talked about in a previous podcast called burning the boats. Or in other words, you need to remove any chance that you possibly have of going back to college. You need to get yourself declared ineligible to play in college because then you only have one option. In the past, you could do this pretty easily just by signing an agent to represent you. That automatically caused you to lose your eligibility to play basketball. The NCAA actually changed this rule, though, in 2018, and players now actually are allowed to sign with an agent and still return to college. Another way that you used to lose your eligibility was by declaring for the draft. But again, the NCAA in that same rule change changed this, so they actually allow players who have declared for the draft to come back. So that's not enough to signal to them that you are going pro or to burn the boats because there still are these little rowboats that could take you back to school. So within the new rules... Even though they're designed to help players, there's still ways that I can burn the boats and eliminate all options of me going back. The easiest way for me to do this would be to somehow capitalize financially off my image. So if I were to appear in a commercial, for example, and get paid for it, or if I signed a shoe deal, or if I accepted money to go do an autograph signing, all of those things would signal to the NCA that I'm no longer an amateur athlete and that I'm now, in fact, a professional athlete and cause me to lose my eligibility. So if I did that, that shows the other nine players that I actually cannot choose to go back to college, that I have only one option, and that is to go to the draft. So if I do this, that should give them some pause and make them reconsider whether they should enter the draft or not. Because if they go into the draft, now their best option is to only get $11 million a year. They're actually hurting themselves by coming out. Outside of just burning the boats, almost forcing their hand, 
we could just open a dialogue with these other nine individuals and we could talk to them and we could try to convince them that you are coming out for school. You could share your own personal thoughts, you could communicate, you can make threats, whatever it is, but you could have a dialogue with them and through that dialogue, you could convince them that you're coming out or the reverse of that holds true as well. If you have that dialogue and you are for sure that they're coming out, that helps you make your decision to maximize your outcome. So the first strategy in this game would be to try to convince everyone that you are going into the draft. While at the same time, you need to be paying attention to what the other nine players are doing, what actions they're taking to see maybe have they signed with an agent? Are they getting a shoe deal? Are they doing commercials? Because maybe they're burning the boats as well to signify to you that you should go back to school to optimize the potential outcome for yourself. By the way, you should note that this game that we're talking about is very similar to the PK shootout we discussed earlier in the podcast. Both situations are outguessing games, so the strategy to win is very similar. In both cases, the player wants to try to gather as much information as possible from their opponent before they decide on what action to take. In the draft game, this is done through talking to other players or watching to see if they're burning the boats. In the shootout game, this is done through studying the habits of the two players. So let's get into talking about some strategies to help win the game that we started with. So if I look at past actions, for example, I can look at what the player has done in previous shootouts, either which way the goalie prefers to dive to, maybe what side's their power side. I can look at where the shooter has shot in the past. And if I pay attention to these factors and a bunch of little factors that directly relate to the shot, then I can better predict what direction the shooter will go. And I can also better predict the direction that the goalie may move. In this manner, subtle information can actually tell you a lot about a player. For example, when the shooter stands before they start to move towards the ball, we can actually gather a ton of information about what the shooter's intention is, or we can make a very informed guess about what direction they might go. If they take a steep angle to the ball, then they're more likely to go to their strong foot side. So if they're coming at the ball almost perpendicular to the goal, it becomes almost impossible for them to turn their hips completely to go back in the direction that they're running from. So the steeper that angle, the more likely they are to go to the side of the foot that they're shooting with. For a right-footed player, this would mean they're shooting to the right side of the goal. If they take a more acute angle, meaning that they stand almost directly behind the ball, then they're more likely to shoot the ball across their body. That means for a right-footed player, they would be shooting to the left. So just knowing this little piece of information about where the shooter starts, the goalie can maybe make a decision about which way to move. They're gathering little pieces of information and they're trying to make an educated guess about what move to make. However, it's not just the goalie that can use this information. The player, if they're smart enough, they know that if they set up straight behind the ball, the goalie is going to think that they're shooting back across their body, meaning for a right-footed player, they're shooting left. So they can try to set up in a way to trick the goalie to think they might be going one way so they can do the opposite. Because remember, the outcome that the shooter wants is to go the opposite way because they make that shot 90% of the time. And so each actor wants to try to gather as much information as possible before they make a decision about what they're going to do. In addition to just watching what the shoot, where the shooter lines up, the goalie might also watch the player's eyes, for example, as shooters tend to at least glance at the spot 
where they're shooting at some point before they take the shot. The goalie might also want to watch where the first step is to the ball. Similar to where they line up, where the first step is towards the ball oftentimes tells us what they might be doing. And finally, the player might want to pay attention to just a few seconds before they strike a ball and see where the goalie is. Maybe see if they're leaning a certain way or maybe seeing if they're making any movement at all. So the player wants to watch out for all these things. The goalie wants to watch out for all these things. And the individual that's able to gather more information and accurately analyze it is going to have the best chance at winning in that matchup. So while these are just two examples of simultaneous games in sport, hopefully working through them along with working through the bank game has given you a better idea of what a simultaneous game is, how to think about them and approach them and set them up, and provided you with some strategies that you can do to make sure you come out on top. In future podcasts, we're going to dive even more into some real-world examples on simultaneous games. We're going to offer up some solutions and some strategies the player can take or should have taken in different situations. If you have any recommendation for strategic situations in sports you would like to see discussed or any questions about simultaneous games in general, please feel free to reach out to us on our Instagram page at The Sport Professor. Also check out that page for the previously mentioned game matrix that will help you understand better how we can approach and solve these situations. And if you're interested in learning anything else about game theory, please check out our two previous podcasts we did on game theory in the NBA and game theory and introduction. Until next time, though, thank you for listening to this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.